Well, good morning, everyone. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. I don't know if anyone mentioned this to you on your way in the doors, but we've decided that um, uh, 8.30 people are the coolest in the church. So, you know, I'm just saying, just saying you're the smartest too. Uh, So I just thought you should know that this morning. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Now, I realize that uh, for some people, uh, this may sound like an obscure Old Testament reference uh, but the truth is, it's arguably one of the, uh, the most recognized and familiar texts in ancient biblical literature, uh, primarily because it contains what's become known as, you know, down through history as the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And, uh, you know, let's face it, some of our cultural familiarity with the text originates with Cecil B. DeMille and uh, his epic Hollywood production uh, about Moses and the Exodus with Charlton Heston has become a classic. Most people have seen it. Uh, and in, in, in reality, it was a serious attempt to, uh, to tell the story. On the other hand, there have been some not-so-serious Hollywood renditions that have taken creative liberties, I guess you could say, uh, and sort of blurred the facts for people. And for example, uh, Mel Brooks, uh, here's his version. So, if you're wondering, we've cleared, we've cleared that up, right? In spite of what Brooks says, according to Exodus 20, there really were only ten basic commands God gave uh, his people, the Israelites. Uh, and uh, over the next several weeks, uh, I want to explore each of them with you. And here's why. I mean, for one, they're practical and serve as the basis of Western thought and civilization. And two, because... Uh, in the ever-evolving ethical climate of 21st century America, in which we're all trying to live good lives and raise our kids to do the same, the clash between uh, moral relativism, you know, anything goes, and moral absolutism, that there's certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong, continues. That, that clash continues. And so uh, those who argue in favor of moral absolutes uh, often cite these commandments as the foundation of their beliefs. In fact, according to a USA Today poll, uh, about 80% uh, of Americans affirm these Ten Commandments. But uh, ironically, when asked to list them, they had a hard time. People have a hard time uh, doing that. On average, people will get two to four of them out of the ten, but they can't remember the others. So in the time that we have this morning, uh, I, I want to begin our, our series by addressing three simple questions. What are the Ten Commandments? Uh, how are they specifically relevant to us and what's on the top of the list. Okay, So let's start with the first. What are the commandments? Uh, here in Exodus 20, uh, God says to his people, uh, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet. So those are the famous 10. Sometimes referred to, that's referred to as a whole as the Decalogue. That's a Greek word that simply means 10 words or 10 laws. And uh, what's fascinating to me is that, you know, really the key in understanding what these laws, what these words, what these commands are really about and how they're, how they're relevant to us is found in God's introductory statement. When he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. See, the historical context of Exodus 20 is critically important. After 400 years of, uh, 
oppression in Egypt. God graciously rescues the Israelites from bondage. He sends a deliverer, Moses, to, to guide them to freedom. Uh, but these people had never been uh, a free nation before. This was a whole new experience for them. As slaves, Egyptian law regulated their daily lives. And now suddenly, here they were, loved and liberated by God. True, but they're out on their own. You know, it's been about three months now. Uh, and here they were, uh, out on their own, you know, wondering, you know, okay, how are we going to keep going? How are we going to survive as a nation? How are we going to live together in safe, healthy, sustainable community? And that's where these commandments come into play. So understand, Exodus 20 doesn't represent the, the, the random dictates of a capricious deity. These were the wise words of God, the creator of all things, who fashioned human beings, you and me, all of us, in his own image. And therefore, he knows what is, what is right and best and good and healthy and safe uh, for all of us. And so while these, these, uh, these commandments were given to the Israelites, they're not limited to the Israelites. It's broken, imperfect, sinful people trying to get along in the world today. These commandments make sense to everybody. I mean, this is where healthy human life and family and community start with these 10. And on some level, uh, we all know that that's true, right? I mean, you, you tell me, what parent wants their, their kids to grow up to be, uh, to be uh, you know, thankless, uh, greedy liars? And what single p- person hopes to date a, a violent thief? Whose spouse expects their husband or wife to cheat on them? Who thinks murder is okay? And who doesn't want a day to rest from the rigors of of life and work? If you think about it, honesty, contentment, faithfulness, generosity, uh, rest, honor, respect, valuing human life, all those positive qualities reflected in these commands are those that we long to see in ourselves as human beings, uh, to see in our families, to see in our society. And when boiled down, all ten revolve around relationships. One through four have to do with our relationship with God. Five through ten, our relationship with each other. And again, these, were, uh, these commands were for the ancients, but they're also for the contemporaries. They're for us as well. And when obeyed, as human beings, they hold us together. When disobeyed, they lead to alienation, discord, chaos, and violence. And here's the deal. It's God's first commandment that sets the stage for those that follow. And if we adhere to number one, chances are pretty good that the other ones will get obeyed. But if we repeatedly forget and violate the first commandment, all bets are off on the rest. They just become suggestions. So what's, what's on top of the list? What's God's first commandment? Well, here it is. God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, it's important to note how God starts off here by asserting his authority to issue these commandments in the first place. Uh, And he does so by using his proper name, the name that he gave to Moses back in Exodus chapter 2. In Scripture, that name is always represented by the English word Lord in small capital letters. Uh, It represents the Hebrew verb to be. And so it can be translated a number of ways. It can be translated, I am who I am, or I be who I be. Um, The name emphasizes God's, uh, God's divine nature, how he is the eternal being, the source of all things. The Hebrew term for God that's used along with it carries the idea of power, of strength, of, of mightiness. So, so here's my, here's my Reiki translation, okay? God says, I am the self-existing I am, the source of all being, the source of all things, the mighty one. There are no other beings real or imagined who rival me. 
I am your God. I am your God. So in some ways, the message is quite simple, short, sweet, yet it carries long-range implications, not only for the Israelites, but for those of us living in 21st century America. But think for a second. As you read through that, as you begin to read through these, what, is, what do you think God is doing here? And I've been thinking about it for quite a while, and it seems to me that God is instructing his people, in, in many respects, to, to, do a, to not to do a number of things. For example, I think first it's about saying no to atheism. Um, over the past few years, as many of you realize, there's been a flurry of activity among avowed atheists to uh, publicly challenge, discredit, and, and ridicule the very notion of God's existence. Books like The God Delusion by Dawkins, The End of, of Faith by Harris, God is Not Great by Hitchens, are all unashamedly anti-God, anti-religion, anti-Christian, and the authors would like nothing more than to, to eliminate religion altogether. And that makes some believers really nervous. And uh, we get a little intimidated by that and, and by their vitriol, and we retreat from the debate and isolate ourselves into our own little subculture and focus on issues that, 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 that don't matter to the rest of the world. But listen to me when I tell you this. What seems to be a rise in the popularity of atheism is just an illusion. The fact is that, that true atheism is on the decline. Belief in God uh, is, is massively, uh, is a massive reality uh, all around the world. 92% of Americans believe in God. Why? Because most human beings realize that to accept the atheistic premise that by pure accident nothing produced everything, non-life generated life, randomness formed order, chaos translated information, unconsciousness produced consciousness, non-reason produced reason. And so here we are, just a bunch of animals without purpose, with no meaning, going nowhere really. Well, that's a lot, that's a lot to buy into. And people don't. One of my favorite bands right now is a, an indie band called The Low Anthem. And they write a song called Charlie Darwin. And in the song, they sing these lyrics. Who could heed the words of Charlie Darwin? Fighting for a system built to fail. Oh my God, life is cold and formless. You know, I struggle with this idea of naturalism. You know, a world without God. There's no meaning in it. Um, there's no purpose to our lives. And it's not only bands and artists that are struggling with it. Very, very bright, um, educated people like Dr. Anthony Flew, known as the world's greatest philosophical atheist and uh, author of the classic atheist textbook, The Presumption of Atheism, abandoned his disbelief at the end of his life. Just before he died uh, in 2010, he finished his last book entitled There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist uh, Changes His Mind. And uh, the book rattled the atheist community because with intellectual honesty, Flew argued this. He said, the rationality that we unmistakably experience, ranging from the laws of nature to our capacity for rational thought, cannot be explained if it doesn't have an ultimate ground, which can be nothing less than an infinite mind. I have to go where the evidence leads me. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, Ray, you need to ease up on the whole atheist deal, right? You're preaching to the choir, uh, the already convinced. You know, we believe in God, at least theoretically, and that's why we're here. And I get that. But let's not kid ourselves. There is a form of atheism that exists even among the religious crowd. 
It infiltrates the church. It reaches into our own auditorium. It's called functional atheism. And functional atheism is when you say you believe in God, but in practicality, you live like he doesn't exist. The only time you think about him is when you're around other religious type people. The only time you look to him is in an emergency. That's when you pray. Otherwise, you're on the go every day doing your, doing your deal and giving God a little time, little thought. Rarely do you thank him for all the things that, that you have. You, you kind of view, you view serving him as a hassle. Even getting here on Sunday is a pain. Giving to him is unnecessary. Rarely do you openly acknowledge him at home, at work, or at school. Your life is mostly about the pursuit of happiness, personal happiness, not personal holiness. Now, at least I'll say this about true atheists. They're consistent in their beliefs. Functional atheists simply wallow in religious hypocrisy, even while filling chairs on Sunday mornings. And make no mistake about it, I mean, both forms of atheism violate the first commandment because God gets excluded from the everyday lives of the people he, he created and loves. The first commandment also instructs us to say no to deism. Deism is the belief that there is a God who made the universe, but he's not intimately engaged with his creation. He doesn't, he doesn't really interfere with things. He established the immutable laws of nature. He provided what was required for survival. Then he set the whole thing in motion, stepped back, and let it go on its own. Now, we have, we have two kids. Uh, my son Corey is our youngest. My daughter Megan's our oldest. Well, when, when we first had Megan... Uh, our first child, I remember coming home from the hospital and carrying her up the stairs into our little apartment in this, uh, it, was, it was this car seat deal. And we, we brought her up in, into the apartment and we set her down on this wooden toy chest that was sitting in front of our couch. And we sat down and we were looking at her as if she was a monkey in a cage. <laughs> and we're just like, okay, she's pretty cool. What do we do now? You know? And I think if you're a parent, you get that. Um, well, imagine if we said to her, okay, baby, creating you was a good thing, but uh, we're stepping out for a while. Uh, the temperature is regulated in the apartment. You know, uh, the refrigerator is stocked with formula. The crib is over there. The bathroom's over there. Go for it. Survive. You know, live. Have a blast. And then chose never to interact with her again. That's basically the premise of deism. That God created the world, plopped human beings in the center of it, provided all the necessary stuff, and then said, so long, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. <laughs> You're on your own. It's the idea that God doesn't interact with our daily lives. That's hardcore deism. And I say it's hardcore because there's a softer version of deism whereby God is seen as having limited interaction with us. Dr. Chris Smith is a professor of sociology at Notre Dame University, and his book entitled Soul Searching, uh, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, he did a lot of research, and what he found was that most Americans, and especially younger ones, hold to what he refers to as moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's, that's the belief that God isn't particularly involved in, in our lives, and he doesn't really have to be um, except when he's needed to res resolve a problem. And then if you're good, God will be good to you because that's his job. And if you're a really good, really moral person, you get to go to heaven. Well, let me tell you something. Deism in whatever form it comes, whether it sees God as a cold, distant inventor or views him as a serviceable do-gooder who occasionally reacts to our moral achievements, both violate the first commandment. 
In fact, here in Exodus 20, before we even get to verse 3, where, the, where we have the first commandment, deism is rejected in verse 2. Because God says, I'm the Lord your God who what? Brought you out of Egypt. In other words, I get involved. Here's my Reiki summary. As our creator God, he does not abandon his creation. But rather he intervenes in our daily lives. He's aware of what's happening. He comes to the rescue of his people. Not because of our innate goodness, but because of his goodness and grace. And throughout scripture, we're assured of that. We're assured that God is near, not far off. That he hears our cries and responds. That he he comforts the brokenhearted. That he sets captives free. He forgives sin. He removes guilt and fear. He invites our prayers. He fills us with his spirit. And ultimately, through his word, guides us in the ways that we should go. And then, ultimately... If you think about it, he's the God who, because of his great love, miraculous, miraculously, personally, and physically intervened in human history. In Jesus, God came to us and changed our world forever. And uh, just on a personal note, uh, let me just say, you can't tell me that God doesn't intervene in our lives. Because I'm living proof that he does. So understand, no one cares more about about me, no one cares more about you, no, no one cares more about all of us on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis than God himself. And because of his love and merciful intervention, he alone deserves our, our total allegiance. Which brings us to uh, another thing the first commandment instructs on, and that's to, that we're to say no to polytheism. Uh, polytheism is the belief in many gods, that's what the word means. If you know anything about the ancient Near East, then you know that... Um, uh, the cultures surrounding ancient Israel uh, were blatantly polytheistic. The, the, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, just to name a few. And they all had a myriad of gods and goddesses and deities that they worshipped and sacrificed to. And in Jesus' day, you know, the Greeks had their gods, the Romans had their deities. Uh, and all around the world today still, there are cultures and religious systems that are openly polytheistic. You know, Hinduism, Buddhism, Shintoism, neo-paganism. And uh, with the globalization of our world and the pluralistic nature of our society, along with the immediate access we now have to information through technology and the Internet, we don't have far to go to be exposed to polytheistic beliefs. But here's the reality. The assertion that there are many gods, or that you can somehow become God yourself, is a lie that's been around for a long, long time and rests at the core of human rebellion. And if and when embraced, that lie trashes the first commandment. Because God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You know what the Hebrew literally reads here? It literally reads, you shall have no other gods before my face. That's what the, that's what the text actually says. Before my face. Here's my Reiki translation. God says, don't be putting all these false deities up in my grill. That's an interesting translation. (laughs) I mean, however you want to translate it. God unquestionably instructs his people to say no to atheism, say no to deism, say no to polytheism. And anyone who would worship him as creator and rescuer, essentially, God says, you have to say no to divided loyalty. Or another way to think about it is this. The first commandment is not just calling us from something, it's calling us to something. Namely, to an exclusive and committed relationship with God himself. 
In atheism, human beings are alone in this, this, this dark, vast universe. Life has no meaning. It's just the result of a freak biological accident and impersonal evolutionary process. And our future rests with humanity alone, which, I don't know about you, doesn't leave me with much hope. Deism espouses a God who is distant and really doesn't care, is not all that interested in interacting with, you know, insignificant beings like, uh, like us. But, you know, if we're good enough, we might persuade him to help. But by and large, we're on our own. And then polytheism promotes gods of every shape, size, and color who manipulate us or who in turn can be manipulated. Um, these humanly designed deities are all about power. They're all about control, not love and relationships. But the Lord your God is different. The creator, the God of the Israelites, the God of Scripture, is a personal being who is by nature loving and intimately concerned about us, about how we live our lives every single day. These commandments are in essence declarations of that love given to inform us on what true healthy life and relationships and healthy community is all about. And and, and this first command thunders a warning uh, against those who are tempted to develop a connection with something or someone other than the one true God who says, who says no to divided loyalty. If you remember in the New Testament, Jesus was asked one day about, you know, what was the greatest commandment of God? He was asking, do you remember what Jesus said to that question? He summarized it this way. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Well, notice he didn't say, love the Lord your God with some of your heart, a little of your soul, and a piece of your mind. He said, love him totally, love him full out, love him with all that you have, all that you are, all that you do. Make God the supreme authority in in your life. And then Jesus went on to say, in case you were wondering what the second greatest commandment was, he says, uh, you shall love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. You see what Jesus was doing? He was uniting theology and relational ethics. He was stressing the fact that loving God impacts our moral values and the way that we treat uh, each other, the way we treat family, the way we treat friends, the way we treat neighbors, the way, way we treat fellow Christians. Everything we think, everything we say, everything we do is connected to our relationship with God. A Christian author and thinker, C.S. Lewis, I think hit the... Um, hit the nail on the head when he said one time, he said, you know, our problem in life isn't that we love things too much, but that we love God too little. Then Lewis went on to write this. He said, you know, every Christian uh, would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. That spiritual health is exactly proportional to our love for God. Is that true? Is that true? If so, then the question becomes, how healthy am I? How healthy are you? Put another way, how much do I love God? How much do you love God? And love isn't just about feeling nice and warm and fuzzy. Love is commitment. Love is loyalty. How loyal are you? Several years ago, a a famous Polish filmmaker named Krzysztof Kieślowski wrote um, and directed a 10-hour film series entitled The Decalogue, or The the Ten Words, The Ten Laws. And it was a television series over in Europe, and um, Eastern Europe, and and it won a number of international awards. 
Uh, and each hour is separated into 10 hours. Each hour, of the, each hour of the series represented one of the Ten Commandments and a story associated with it. And when talking about the series and talking specifically about the commandments, Kishlovsky said this in an interview. He said, you know, for 6,000 years, these rules have been unquestionably right. Yet we break them every day. We know what we should do and yet fail to live as we should. People feel there's, there's just something wrong in life. Kishlovsky, his assessment is correct. I mean, there is something wrong. You know it and I know it. The world's a broken place with broken people uh, who have a sense of what we should do and how we should live and how we should relate together, but often we don't do it. Lying, cheating, greed, stealing, violence, even murder are all hurtful realities, destructive things that are, that are all addressed here in Exodus 20 and subsequent commandments. But before we get to any of those, we desperately need to deal with the first one. This opening commandment sets, it sets the tone. It sets the course of our lives. It calls us to an exclusive, loving relationship with God, one that affects our relationships with each other. Obedience to it protects our hearts uh, from spiritual oppression. It sets us on a course to follow the other nine. Loving God with undivided loyalty regulates our values. It, 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 it produces a desire in us to be obedient. And it challenges us to live by faith and to take calculated risks on God's behalf. And it sets us free to live as genuine, uh, with a genuine sense of meaning and fulfillment. In short, it meets it truly meets our deepest human needs. Without God, as flawed imperfect creatures, we're simply left and lost to our own evil devices. So God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, how are you doing with that? How's that going for you? Do you believe he exists? Do you live like he does every day? Do you realize that he... He cares that he intervenes in your life, that he has intervened in human history. When you get up every morning, do you acknowledge and thank him for another day? Do you understand that he invites you into this, this unique, exclusive, loving relationship? And that he knows, he knows what is right and what is best and what is good and what is healthy for you? This week, the more I was thinking about it, the more I realize that nearly every religion worldwide has established and set down an ethical and moral code of conduct very similar to what we read here in Exodus 20. And all of those religions teach that if you're good enough and you obey the code and you keep the rules, you can work your way to paradise, nirvana, heaven, or whatever. Basically, you can earn your eternal rescue. And a lot of people mistakenly think the same when it comes to these Ten Commandments. Man, if I could just be good enough, if I could keep all these, at least a few of them, Maybe God will save me. But let me, let me point out something to you that's very important here. These commands were given to an already rescued people. The Israelites were not set free by keeping these laws. They didn't earn their way out of bondage by adhering to them, no. These men and women were rescued. They were redeemed by the grace of God. It's always the grace of God that saves, not adherence to rules that we as sinful men and women cannot possibly keep. These commands were given by God to those who followed the Deliverer and already rescued people who just had never been free before. 
The commands help them see and understand how good, healthy life and relationships and community are supposed to be. How it was meant to be. And really, who knows more about that than the God who created us and the God who loves us. Let's pray. Our Father, I I pray this morning that um, you'd help us uh, perhaps in a new way, understand these these ten words, these ten laws, these ten commands that that you have given to us, uh, not as just uh, not just some random group of of rules to follow, but things that give us insight on, into what what healthy life as a human being, what healthy life and what healthy relationships and what healthy community really looks like and what it involves and what it requires. So often we think of these Ten Commandments as as things we have to do to earn your rescue when in fact you gave these commands to an already rescued people. Rescued because of your grace and nothing else. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us grasp that because we often fall back into the performance narrative whereby we think we have to keep all the rules uh, to please you and to make our way to heaven when the harsh reality is we can't possibly keep them. Not perfectly, not all the time. I certainly can't. We are in need of your grace always. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that we would become a people who worship you only. No other gods. We worship you only. And we give you our lives every single day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.